Welcome to History Talk, where we explore the deep background behind what's going on in the news. I'm your host, Patrick Pagnani. Among the most important initiatives undertaken by United States law enforcement at all levels for more than the past half century has been an attempt to suppress the use, sale, and trade of drugs deemed illegal by lawmakers in society. Known as the War on Drugs since the 1970s, this effort has absorbed many billions of dollars, led to armed intervention overseas, reduced the incarceration of millions of individuals in the United States, and stigmatized inner-city communities of color, among many other effects. But why did drugs become illegal in the first place? Is the war on drugs worth the cost? And what insights does history offer into how we might confront the problem of drug use? On today's show, we offer three conversations. In our first, host Mark Sikolsky speaks with Scott Martin of Bowling Green on America's most concerted attempt to ban a mind-altering substance, prohibition. Martin challenges the idea that the modern war on drugs can be likened to prohibition, arguing that the differences between the two far outweigh the similarities. Next, I speak with Stephen Siff of Miami University of Ohio about the illegalization of marijuana. Siff explains how marijuana was made illegal in the first place in the early 20th century and some reasons why attitudes have been so difficult to change since then. And in our last segment, Mark Sikolsky sits down with Ohio State's Clay Howard to discuss when drugs first became a matter of public concern, pointing out that federal and state governments became involved in the suppression of drugs only gradually. Then, Howard highlights the relationship between drugs, race, and America's urban crisis of the 1970s and 80s to help us understand why we see such vast disparities in drug enforcement between white communities and communities of color. We have three great interviews for you today, so stay tuned on History Talk, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. Joining us now is Dr. Scott Martin, Professor of History and American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Martin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, you know, lately we hear a lot in the news about the uh, legalization or illegalization of drugs in general, and specifically marijuana, and occasionally people sort of bandy about comparisons between the war on drugs and and prohibition. Um, Would you say this is an apt comparison, or are there big differences here that we should bear in mind? Um, I think there are big differences, and the thing to keep in mind is that the comparison of the war on drugs to prohibition has long been a staple of the pro-legalization movement. And however you feel about legalization or having things remain illegal, um, the fact remains that this is a bad analogy. It's not an apt analogy. And for uh, those in favor of legalization, I think it serves more of a rhetorical function than uh, an actual analytical tool or, or something like that. Basically, I think there are two major problems with it. Um, The pro-legalization movement would argue that prohibition and its supposed failure demonstrates that you cannot ever prohibit things that the public wants, like alcohol, that they will find a way to get them, Mm -hmm. whether it's through speakeasies or marijuana dispensaries or or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there are two problems with that, Um, aside from the obvious one that we prohibit all sorts of things that that people want, Um, whether it's exceeding the speed limit or income tax evasion or child pornography or bigamy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Those prohibitions don't completely eliminate that behavior, but I don't think anyone is saying we should 
then they're a failure. We should just completely eliminate the laws that make those things prohibited. Um, so there's that. The law itself, um, the Prohibition Amendment, and then the Volstead Act, which actually enacted it, um, are a, a very different animal than the war on drugs. A couple of big differences, the Prohibition Amendment uh, in the amendment itself gave what was then called uh, concurrent authority for the states and federal government to enforce prohibition. This meant that both the states and federal government were supposed to enforce it, uh, each in their own way and hopefully uh, in complementary ways as well. When it came right down to it, uh, in various places, particularly in urban areas, prohibition turned out to be unpopular for a variety of reasons. And so city mayors, uh, and in some cases state governors, didn't want to enforce prohibition. The problem with that was that the federal government was relying on the states and localities uh, for manpower, for all sorts of resources to do this. So there hadn't really been sufficient resources allocated at the federal level for an enterprise of this magnitude. Now, there was a Federal Bureau of Prohibition that did have agents that went out and, and looked for uh, stills and speakeasies and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was a, a relatively small, just a couple of hundred, um, a couple of hundred men in the, the prohibition unit, much too small to make up for a, a lack of uh, enforcement activity in any one city or state, let alone the entire country. Right. Um, the other problem with the uh, prohibition agents was that initially when the Volstead Act was set up, being a prohibition agent was not a civil service position. It was an appointed position. So in other words, if you wanted to work for the post office or you know, the federal agency, generally there were requirements. You might have to take an exam uh, and demonstrate that you were in fact fit to do this. Such was not the case, uh, at least initially, uh, for the Federal uh, Prohibition Bureau. And uh, it unfortunately devolved into cronyism so that, um, you know, a prominent uh, person would get his cousin or, you know, his uh, brother-in-law appointed, uh, even though they had no background in this. And this led to corruption, inefficiency, uh, all sorts of things. So I think those are two areas in which, um, you know, there are big differences between the war on drugs and prohibition. And also when you, when you add in the fact that Americans and, and the Anglo-American world generally, we have centuries of experience with using alcohol. It has been a part of Anglo-American culture mm -hmm. uh, and African culture and Latin American culture, all, pretty much all the Western uh, world for centuries. Uh, we don't have that much experience with drugs like heroin uh, or LSD or, uh, mm -hmm. or even for that matter, marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, it's going to be much harder to uproot something that's been around for centuries, if not millennia, than it is to prohibit something of relatively recent vintage. But would you say that there are, are there any lessons coming out of prohibition for the war on drugs or our approach to legalization, illegalization now? Uh, it's, you know, it's always hard to draw direct lessons from history. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing to point out, though, is in the public mind, prohibition is an abject failure. There was nothing good about it. It, it bred organized crime and speakeasies and uh, contempt for the law. When in fact, if you look at it closely, 
and you actually try to measure the results of it, uh, you could make a case that prohibition didn't do too badly considering the handicaps that it labored under that, that we've just been talking about. Um, for example, by all accounts, when statisticians and, and others have tried to assess how much did it actually cut down on drinking, the best estimate is that it cut down Americans drinking by about 70%, which is yeah. a considerable amount. Mm -hmm. And all the attendant measures of that, like cases of cirrhosis of the liver and arrests for you know, drunkenness and various things like that, not only did it make this huge decrease in drinking, but it took something like four decades into the 1970s before the level of American drinking, the amount that, that people drank, reached pre-prohibition levels. So it, it not only had an immediate effect, but it had a very long-term hmm. effect as well. So that to simply and blithely say, well, prohibition doesn't work because you want to argue for the legalization of drugs, there are enormous problems with that. It, it, it just isn't a good analogy. Okay. Are there other sort of takeaways from prohibition that we can think about as we approach the drug question today? I think just that um, policymakers need to be very clear about what their objectives are. Is it harm reduction? Mm -hmm. Is it a total prohibition uh, of this? Uh, is there some middle ground? Um, do we want to lump together people who use drugs with people who sell drugs? In other words, from prohibition, if the problem is, is Al Capone and, and organized crime, what if you would just crack down on Al Capone and organized crime and not worried about people who are using it, using alcohol, buying alcohol? Uh, and I guess the, the argument today would be you can't criminalize addiction or abuse mm -hmm. because that puts us in this mass incarceration um, situation that, that we're in now. But I think... Uh, for prohibition, the you know the thing, one other lesson that that um, we might take away from it is part of the argument of the legalization movement, particularly for marijuana, but for other drugs as well, uh, is that this can be a positive thing in that it will remove these negative consequences like law enforcement uh, excesses and uh, huge rates of incarceration, but that would also, if you legalize it. Uh, regulate it and tax it, mm -hmm. it becomes a, a public good and it, it generates tax funds and revenue and all sorts of things like that. Right. And I think the thing to remember, that may in fact be true, but um, even when you legalize and regulate something, it doesn't mean there won't be a black market mm -hmm. in it. Just as there's still moonshining today, there's still sales of um, untaxed liquor. Uh, cigarettes would be another example. Uh, even though cigarettes are legal, heavily regulated, heavily taxed, um, they are one of the major uh, contraband items on the black market. I think uh, several years ago, um, there was an estimate that like a quarter of the cigarettes sold in New York City are not taxed. They're, they're black market cigarettes. So a lot of the problems that pro-legalization advocates would argue will go away, will not necessarily go away, or they won't go away completely or as completely as perhaps they would hope. Okay. Did people deploy these sort of public health type arguments that we hear now in favor of prohibition? Was that common or was it more of a moral, uh, they were moral arguments primarily? Um, it, they were probably more moral arguments. Mm -hmm. um, there would be uh, an economic argument um, that 
drinking led to squandering of resources. It led to the impoverishment of families, that the saloon was a particularly evil place that drained the wages from workers and, and thus uh, damaged their families and children and, and all sorts of things like that. But uh, it was also a, a moral uh, argument that no one can use liquor safely, mm. that even one drink is, is enough to, uh, to set you on a road to drunkenness and, and death and disease and all sorts of horrible things. Uh, in that sense, I think prohibition and repeal uh, are something of a watershed in that um, the focus shifts away from the substance itself, alcohol, to the user of it. Um, and you begin to think about, well, are some people different in that they can't use alcohol successfully? Uh, and this, if you, if you think about it, it's in the 30s that Alcoholics Anonymous emerges as the, the primary and, and then really only treatment available for alcoholics. And their argument is some people can drink like gentlemen, and if they can, then, you know, God bless them, but we can't. So this enables um, culturally, and in the culture, I think, a shift away from moral arguments to more medically-based and public health arguments about the impact of liquor and the policy questions that surround it. That was host Mark Sikolsky interviewing Scott Martin, professor of history at Bowling Green State University. Among many other publications, he is the author of The Long Shadow of Prohibition, U.S. Drugs and Alcohol Policy in the 20th Century, and the Oxford Handbook of American Political and Policy History. Next up, I welcome Steve Siff of Miami University to discuss the illegalization of marijuana. Welcome, Steve Siff, to History Talk. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, To start, I just was wondering if you could introduce us to how drugs like marijuana were viewed in the 19th century. Well, in the 19th century, at least in the United States, marijuana was probably not very well known uh, by, by most people, although there was certainly some use um, in, the, in the Southwest. And also it was, it was available through pharmacies um, as a product in a, a bunch of different forms, I think as a tincture and um, also in a, in a sort of solid form of, of cannabis or hash. But I don't think it was, um, it wasn't widely used or, or widely known by, by most Americans. And then I, I think it became increasingly well known in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, both related to, um, to immigration and also to sort of publicity around the drug use, uh, around the use of cannabis, particularly among um, immigrants from Mexico and also in, uh, in black communities in the South. And so that's what uh, marijuana became associated with then in the early 20th century. And, and so was there kind of like a racial or xenophobic or maybe even class-based dynamic to how marijuana oh. came to be viewed? And, and did that play a role in its kind of eventual illegalization? Definitely. All, all three of those things, you know, it, it was viewed as being used by um, by ethnic minorities, it was viewed by being used as lower class people, and it was viewed as, you know, being associated with sort of crime and vice and other, you know, kind of unpleasantness. And, and all of this certainly contributed energy to the, to the laws, the first, the first local laws, and then subsequently state and federal laws um, banning, banning the drug's use. Um, I mean, it's interesting to contrast the prohibition of marijuana with the prohibition of alcohol. 
Um, okay, of course, great. alcohol prohibition, the Volstead Act, was uh, in, in effect during the, the 19, 1920s. And the federal prohibition of uh, marijuana took place in the, in the 1930s, 1937. So the federal prohibition of marijuana actually took place after the federal prohibition of alcohol. And it's kind of interesting to contemplate that for the Volstead Act to go into effect, it required a constitutional amendment with um, uh, state legislatures or, or, or U.S. states approving uh, prohibition. And, and this took place over a period of decades before national prohibition could be put in place. On the same, uh, at the same time, the prohibition of, of uh, marijuana, which took place actually after alcohol the prohibition was re- repealed, didn't seem to require any of this um, legalistic kind of baggage. Um, it was the the federal law was done under the authority under the federal government's taxing authority, and although it tried to, uh, although it really had the same effect as alcohol prohibition, or it was a laws to very similar effect, putting in very similar mechanisms, the prohibition of 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 marijuana was allowed to take place. Without, um, I don't know. I guess much more conveniently, the the, the federal government or the the forces in in favor of this didn't have to jump through the kinds of hoops that were necessary for the the failed mm-hmm. alcohol prohibition. Was that experiment. partly because it was it was uh, less well known than alcohol and less maybe ubiquitous, or or why do you think that might have been? Well, it was certainly less well known and okay. certainly less ubiquitous. Those things are both true, and you know, I I think one reason was because the wets the people against uh, for alcohol use were, you know, there's a large number of very easily identified people. Um, you know, basically, I mean, the, the alcohol prohibition can be seen largely through the lens of sort of evangelical Protestants ver- who don't have a tradition of alcohol use moving against um, immigrant groups and Catholic immigrant groups in particular mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who, who did have a long tradition of alcohol use. Um, you know, and often this is seen in, in sort of ethnic, kind of through an ethnic lens as uh, alcohol prohibition kind of pushing against the political power and the political machines of right. German immigrants, of Irish immigrants, of these groups that were really kind of culturally tied to alcohol use and, um, you know, and, and also pushing against their, you know, the taverns and the bars, which were their, their centers of social life and also their centers of political life. There wasn't the same sort of organized opposition to marijuana. Right, same kind of uh, cultural place of, of marijuana in, in you know, some ethnic enclaves or things like that, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And then whatever ethnic enclaves um, did did use it, it didn't have the same. They didn't have the same kind of cultural power as the wets. Right. Okay. The, the same kind of voting power. And and uh, so did did legislators and lawmakers, um, you know, think that illegalization would solve certain problems? And were those problems, um, you know, identified as the same problems as alcohol prohibition? Different problems. But behind alcohol prohibition was these, these sort of issues of, the, the, of, of politics and concern about political machines and politi- uh, politics being run through taverns and bar okay. rooms. And so there was this big subtext there. To the to prohibition, as well as the sort of racial subtext, I think it was a little different with marijuana uh, prohibition, because unlike alcohol, which of course was a very very common drug, very everyone had 
had at least seen it or seen a, a tavern, right? Mm-hmm. With, with marijuana in the 30s, I believe that wasn't the case. I, I think it was still fairly exotic um, to, to most people and, and scary. I think the reason that alcohol prohibition was so popular or was it, w- caught steam wasn't as much because it was solving um, solving some sort of uh, problem in particular as that it was offered a set of tools to empower uh, local police and law enforcement. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you know, and, and most of these tools were the same tools that had been developed and used during, during prohibition. Um, you know, th- things like, um, well, you know, the, the, the ability to stop someone on the street and search them. Okay. To, um, the roots you know, of to that are police here. Be- yeah, the the roots of those things are all, you know, and, and the, those are in, the roots of that are in marijuana prohibition. The roots of that are in alcohol prohibition also. I mean, alcohol pro- prohibition. And uh, Lisa McGurr writes about this very compellingly in her in her recent book about prohibition, the the extent to which law enforcement on the local level use prohibition law as a means to, um, or as, as a set of tools to crack down on on uh, minority and immigrant groups, and also for more aggressive policing in general. Right. And so I I think a lot of the impetus for the anti the early anti drug laws really came from the police departments, came from the bottom up rather than from the federal government. And you know, obviously, prohibition came from the top down in the states that did not uh, sign the you know, that did not ratify the Volstead Amendment. Um, um but and. and- you know, jumping ahead a bit here to some, kind yeah. of some later decades, um, it seems like marijuana uh, had a gained a much higher profile, especially, um, you know, with uh, President Richard Nixon's administration and then President Ronald Reagan's administration. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about how it it became so well known and maybe a little bit of how the, the role played by the media and or those presidencies played in um, making sure marijuana had uh, such a negative reputation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, mar- marijuana use became increasing dramatically during the '60s, of course. Okay, right. And began increasing dramatically not only among uh, minority groups or lower class people, people not only among um, in cities and among um, the people we associate with drug use, but of course among college students, the other people we associate with drug use. Right. And uh, during the late during the late '60s, there was actually a lot of sympathy towards uh, or a lot of ambivalence about drug. The prohibition of marijuana or strict enforcement, strict criminal criminal enforcement of drug law when it came to marijuana, mm-hmm. as so many um, so many white middle class kids became involved with the drug, and um, I think, and on the federal level at least, legislators legislatures were uh, were anxious about kind of creating about criminalizing a large swath of youth. So why the illegal, why the prohibition of marijuana continued through the 60s and 70s, is a is a good question too. Considering considering these attitudes, you know, most of the rhetoric regarding illegal drugs by the 60s and 70s were really formed with opiates, with heroin in mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when Nixon, for example, in the 1970s talks about his war on drugs and the need to, to that drug use is uh, public enemy number one, it's heroin use that everyone is most concerned about. 
but the the sort of definition of drugs into an illegal and a legal category made it um, just t- tended to uh, everything was sort of lumped together. Right, marijuana became wrapped up in that. Right. Yes, marijuana become wrapped became wrapped up in that. You know, because once a drug is illegal, part of the objection to people using it has nothing to do with the danger of the substance or anything like that. Right. It has okay. to do with the law breaking behavior that we're trying to that we're trying to um, discourage. And and, and, so, and and President Nixon and and it and it seems like you know uh, President Reagan, but also First Lady Nancy Reagan were really against that sort of attitude of you know uh, that you know this is the law one can't break the law. Yeah, just say no. Um, yeah, I mean, a really a purely prohibitionist sort of uh, okay. a- attitude, yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I wanted to ask you, what were some of the, you know, as kind of we look to wrap up here, what were some of the effects of that kind of strictly prohibitionist stance against, you know, marijuana and or other drugs? And, and you know, what can we maybe learn from some of the places like Colorado or Washington that have, uh, you know, decriminalized, uh, you know, marijuana specifically? Well, you know, one of the interesting uh, messages, one of one of the interesting pieces of news from uh, Colorado and Washington has been the decrease in use of um, prescription drugs and these prescription painkillers in particular. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and and, and uh, I mean, it's it's really awfully early to draw lessons, of course, right? Because it's right. only been a, it's only been a couple of years, so I don't think the effect of these changes are have, have fully been been seen yet. But one thing that seems to be happening in these places is that uh, doctors are prescribing less um, less painkillers, um, opiate painkillers, which are, of course, potentially very dangerous drugs because people seem to be using legal legal marijuana as an alternative. Right, right. And, and you know, has, has there been any signs that, uh, you know, some of the violence that is often associated with, you know, a black market illicit trade, has that decreased at all? Or is it still, you know, really too early, as you say, to tell? I haven't seen anything compelling on that. I, okay. I, um, it's um, one would hope, I suppose, but one would hope. Yeah, one would hope that some of the, that um, any any violence that was driven by the marijuana trade would be diminishing. I suspect that it is because I I suspect that the um, trans border marijuana mm-hmm. uh, trade is probably diminishing. Oh right. Okay. With, with the increased with, with with the increasing availability of legal growth sites in the United States. One might imagine that there is more domestically grown marijuana that's seeping into the black market. And so it seems reasonable that there would be less cross-border trade. But I haven't, I, I haven't seen anything um, empirical about that. Great. Well, Steve Siff, thank you for joining us on History Talk today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time this morning. That was Stephen Siff, Associate Professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Miami University of Ohio. He is the author of Acid Hype, American News Media and the Psychedelic Experience, as well as the origins.osu.edu article, The Illegalization of Marijuana, A Brief History. In our final segment, Mark Sikolsky sat down with historian Clay Howard in our studio on Ohio State's Columbus campus to discuss the complex linkages between race, the drug war, and the urban crisis of the 70s and 80s. Joining us now is Clay Howard, assistant professor of history at The Ohio State University. Uh, And we're going to talk a bit about drugs in American cities and American communities uh, in the 20th century. Um, So, Clay, I was wondering, uh, just to start off, you could tell us a bit about when drugs, broadly conceived, became uh, a major issue of public concern 
in the United States? Um, it's a tough question to answer in part, in part because, you know, to varying degrees, drugs have always been with us and that a lot of the drugs that we consider illicit also have medical functions, you know? So like um, heroin also is related to morphine and various other kinds of opiates, uh, painkillers. And a lot of the drugs that we use in things like uh, dentistry have their origins in cocaine as well. And at least originally, maybe 50, 60 years ago, it was um, not uncommon for uh, doctors to prescribe cocaine. And so to some degree, the question of, you know, when have drugs become a, a problem is that drugs have always been something that have been both healers and uh, social problems at the same time. And so when do we see it become a sort of police matter, a matter of criminal justice? It's always been that way, or it's something more recent? Well, to varying degrees, yeah, it's always been that way. But I'd say that over the course of the 20th century, you've seen uh, a big upswing in state and federal regulation mm-hmm. of drugs. So uh, all, the, all the time periods in which the federal or state governments have expanded have also been periods in which the regulation of drugs, the policing of drugs has also expanded. So uh, the, the barring of marijuana during the New Deal, right after the end of Prohibition, Uh, After World War II, there was uh, a a great deal of anxiety about narcotics peddlers in places like California Mm -hmm. um, and all sorts of uh, acts prohibiting the sale and trafficking of drugs. And then, of course, in the 1980s, you get the biggest upswing in the policing of drugs uh, with the war on drugs and the anxiety about crack. Mm -hmm. You know, given the crossover with medicine, do the medical community have much say in what became illegal at, you know, at these various uh, turning points? Yeah, they've been important arbiters. And in fact, that in many ways, groups like the American Medical Association built their reputation on being able to determine between what is a good and what is a bad drug. So one of the hmm. first one of the first federal laws regulating drugs, uh, heroin and cocaine in particular, uh, required that basically only only doctors could prescribe those things. And if you were not a doctor and you were selling it, then then you were in fact uh, breaking the law. So to some degree, the passage of the law not only banned those substances, but also like enhanced the authority of doctors themselves. Mm-hmm. So it sort of goes hand in hand with professionalization of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a sort of institution. Interesting. Okay. And uh, how do we see uh, the war on drugs translate into... Um, uh, you know, drug use or uh, enforcement of anti-drug policies in American cities? Well, you know, one of the kind of consistent problems around the policing of drugs is that communities of color have always kind of suffered from uh, either under-policing or over-policing. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, that the, the lack of police in poorer neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color have often uh, allowed the drug trade to kind of flourish there. And at other moments, the kind of heavy crackdown on, on drug users has disproportionately put African-American men in particular in prison. So that's been a kind of longstanding problem going all the way back to the 50s, if not earlier. Hmm. The 50s. So at that time, um, what drugs would have been the targets? Marijuana or all yeah, kinds marijuana, of things? Yeah, marijuana, heroin, uh, like they call them like benzos, the kind of like amphetamines, oh, things uh-huh. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned the 80s is this big shift. Uh, why, right. do, why do you see that as a turning point in this war on drugs? Well, I mean, only in the sense that the Reagan administration sort of 
institutionalized trends that have been kind of accelerating over the course of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the 1986 crack crackdown, the, the the federal law, I'm blanking on its name right now, made it much easier and had mandatory minimums for people going to prison. And then the 90s, states like California and the federal government had um, three strikes laws. So the, the, the kind of cumulative effect of that was that people started going to prison for much longer okay. and more often. Three strikes law, was that specifically about drugs or is that any felony? No, it's about, it's about any felony. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually, it's in California, its origins was around the, I think, the rape and murder of a little girl, Polly mm-hmm. Class, who mm-hmm. was on America's Most Wanted. Right. And uh, that's when California passed the law, and then Bill Clinton uh, championed it at the federal level. But, you know, as, as the federal government and state governments have classified more and more kinds of drug use and sales as felonies, it adds up. Okay. You know, I'm not sure if you know this, but... Why was it that crack exploded in the 80s? Was there a certain, was there like a, a technological change that people figured out how to make it more cheaply or what uh, what drove that, do you know? That's my understanding. And so mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not an expert on, on, crack, on crack per se. Okay. No, but I mean, I yeah. mean, the thing is that crack is cocaine, right? So cocaine right. has been around in various forms for a really long time. And so my sense is that the 80s, it became widely available, I guess, for two reasons. One would be that the, the packaging, the selling of, of of cocaine with other adulterants, making it crack and easier to smoke. Mm-hmm. But also, I think the the urban crisis, kind of widespread unemployment, mm-hmm. large numbers of people who either needed jobs and worked in the the drug trade, or people who were not working and thus available to to use drugs of one kind or another. That I think that 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 combination of factors made it so combustible. Mm-hmm. And the um, the kind of crack epidemic of the 80s is often taken as this uh, an example of discrepancy between sort of white users of drugs and, and uh, those of color. I was wondering if you could speak a little more broadly about that discrepancy across, you know, different sorts of drugs. Well, I mean, the way that I think about this is that very often white youth who have used drugs, and we know that whites and blacks and Latinos use drugs roughly at the same rates, and because whites are demographically a majority, whites are also a majority of drug users. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that very often whites have often seen white young people, other whites using drugs as victims, either of like peddlers, drug pushers, um, a public health crisis, but have seen uh, youth of color as criminals, predators, threatening. So that's, and that was true back in the 50s as well as in the 80s. Another example that I think of is that, um, you know, in the 80s, part of the anxiety about crack was about so-called crack babies, you know, mothers giving birth to, to babies allegedly addicted to crack and all kinds of states passed laws, making it a felony to use crack when you um, were having a, having a child or when you were pregnant. Mm-hmm. And we now know that although it's, you know, it's medically not good to smoke crack when you are pregnant, that actually alcohol use when you're pregnant is far, 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 far worse. And that a lot of the anxiety about crack babies ended up being unfounded and has everything to do with the perception of crack as being this this poor person's drug, this black person's drug. Is there anything comparable in terms of the sort of racial or ethnic disparity that we see? Yeah. I mean, the example I think it was the the first federal law prohibiting, the one I spoke about earlier, prohibiting the sale of, uh, of heroin and cocaine was, mm-hmm. was in the, the kind of moment of highest immigration in U.S. history, the late 19th and early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of anxiety, not only about uh, Irish and Germans bringing alcohol over with them and you know ruining cities, but also Chinese opium was one of the justifications for excluding the Chinese mm-hmm. in the 1880s and other groups from, from Asia. Hmm. And do you think that given this kind of discrepancy in treating one type of drug use or drug use by certain types of people, 
as a threat and, and in other cases as a public health issue. Do you see more of a shift now away from one toward the other, toward more of a public health perspective, or are we still kind of in the same kind of mixed up territory? It's a good question. I mean, my sense is that there is sort of bipartisan support for rolling back the war on drugs, if if for nothing else, and that it's gotten to be too expensive. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a lot of stories now about white communities that are worried about things like painkillers and heroin, and that's leading to an upsurge in um, treatment for addiction and like treating treating addiction as a health concern instead of a, a criminal concern. There's, the New York Times had a lot of stories about that, mm-hmm. about that recently. But I think that to understand why so many people of color have gone to prison since the 80s, you have to also understand that there were a lot of white people who were using drugs, who were getting caught, who were getting steered towards things like recovery, right? And so I think there's a more public conversation about that, and yet that's also been a longstanding trend, right? The idea is that white, white youth have a future, and so we need to collectively help them. Clay Howard is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Ohio State University. His book, The Closet in the Cul-de-Sac, Sex, Politics, and Suburbanization in Post-War California, is forthcoming from the University of Pennsylvania Press. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to all our guests. And remember, you and your friends can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on our website, origins.osu.edu. And you can leave a review if you're so inclined. As always, thanks for listening. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Badiandi and Mark Sikalski. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening.